This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Good morning, sports fans. Good morning, statistics fans. And good morning, business fans. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball, the show where all three of my favorite topics collide. We're here for the next two hours here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen, and some combination of Shane, myself, Cade Massey, and Adi Weiner are here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, to talk about the intersection of sports statistics and business. Now, of course, this is a call-in show, so obviously Shane and I will be here for two hours talking statistics and sports, and we have two guests coming up, one at the 8.30 and one at the 9 o'clock hour, but of course we want you to join the conversation. Call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can also email our producer Matt Datz at businessradio at siriusxm dot com. And of course, we live in the modern age of social media. Actually, I tweet quite a, quite, quite a bit with our handle at w moneyball. So, Shane, how are you this morning? Excellent, excellent. I hope I I hope I I feel a lot better than I sound. I think, but um, well, you sound okay. But you know, actually, for those obviously we're on the radio here. Um, Shane, actually, you're dressed totally inappropriate this appropriately this morning. Well, Let I mean, me that, say why. That, that that's very typical. No, but that's I don't mean that I don't like what you're wearing. But just for our fans, so we know Shane's Mr. Boston. He's got a Boston hat on, Red Sox hat. Yeah, that's yeah. great. He's got a Celtics jacket on. So it's a green jacket that looks like a Celtics sure, jacket. Yeah, sure. But yeah. why does he not have a Patriots t-shirt on? Oh, So actually, well, that's why you are dressed oh, that, inappropriately I mean, it, it, this it, it, morning. No, well, that's true. I mean, I have to say, wearing Patriots gear around Philadelphia over the last six, eight months has not been a particularly well, actually, fun thing to do Actually, I would think actually it would be just the time. opposite. I would think that given the Eagles won the Super Bowl, yeah. as a matter of fact, if I see somebody walking in a Patriots uh, gear right now around Philadelphia, I say, thank you. No, and, and I mean, I, I I do wish the average Philadelphia Eagles fan was as magnanimous as you are. They are not, as it turns out. They, they there's still somehow a lot of residual resentment. No, and I don't stuff know. Like I think that. all the resentment should be gone um, now in Philadelphia. I mean, I mean, certainly, I am the window on me being able to wear Patriots gear again in Philadelphia is is definitely you, you know. I'm going to be able to do that more often, given that the how the last Super Bowl went with the Patriots losing, than if they had won again. That uh, would yeah, then I would never be able to wear Patriots gear in Philadelphia again. Well, so. again, obviously we have Shane here in all of his uh, Celtic gear or Boston gear. I'm not wearing any New York gear today, but I could certainly well. But of course, uh, please call us at one eight four four Wharton if you want to talk to us about your favorite sports team. So obviously, Shane, the well, first. No, let's let's. We need to stop right now and talk about your favorite football team because they are the story of the week. Well, they've been Fitzmagic the, is the story probably of the season so far. Well, I, it, I would I, say I agree with you, and and Pat Mahomes with the Chiefs. Yes, I think no, that's we, right. we have to that's give right. credit where mm-hmm. credits due. Yep. But um, yeah, I mean, I was fortunate to be at the Eagles at Bucks game this last weekend, and you know, except for one dimension, which I wanted to ask you about because it caught my eye in sports. This is our first segment here. Um, the Buccaneers looked fantastic. Um, Ryan Fitzpatrick was not pressured pretty much at all, which means the Bucks' offensive line is doing a very good job. He's only been sacked twice the season so far. That's a big change from last year where the you know, Jameis Winston, comma, everybody was sacked. I think maybe the most or second most in the NFL. 
Um, he threw an interception, but actually it wasn't an interception. So I actually wrote a note to the league office. I don't know why it hasn't been changed. So he threw a ball that was caught by O.J. Howard in the middle of the field. O.J. Howard took, in my view, at least two steps, but probably three. A guy hit a helmet on the ball. The ball popped up, and the guy picked it off. Well, he took three steps. It's a, catch, a catch and, and a fumble. fumble. Yeah. By, look, I've watched the replay four. Regardless, yeah. he looked fantastic. The team looks great. And now the first thing that caught my eye, I wanted to talk to you about this. If you think about optimal situations for quarterbacks, I think of teams like the Patriots, for example. You have obviously the greatest of all time, Tom Brady, backing up by Hoyer. Certainly nothing wrong with Hoyer. If you needed to insert him, you'd no, be I mean, fine. I, I mean, he basically uh, was a starter right before yeah, the Patriots right. signed him as backup. You could go to the New Orleans Saints, one of the great quarterbacks of all time. You would agree, Drew Brees. Mm-hmm. Their backup quarterback is Teddy Bridgewater. Oh, You yeah. certainly have no complaints about that. As a matter of fact... Bridgewater, before he was traded to the Saints, may have won the job. Yeah. And so, with the Jets, you know, and certainly if he was... Contrast that with a team like the Packers, where when Aaron Rodgers went down, you have Deshaun Kaiser walking in. Well, that's the part. So that's what I wanted to talk to you about. But But, and also, actually, we could argue here in Philadelphia we have an optimal situation. Because everyone's been clear that Carson Wentz is the franchise quarterback. His data would support it. And, of course, we do have Nick Foles, and, you know, he did win us a Super Bowl, and, you know, they went one and one. I mean, he's done more than just keep the ship afloat. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not many backups come in and win the Super Bowl for your team, so... That, that does okay. But that takes me back to my team, the Buccaneers. Mm-hmm. So what do you think is going to happen? Now, they have a game Monday night. Actually, I'm going to be there as well. Yeah. They have a game Monday night at home to the Steelers. So let's imagine, I were to tell you at the beginning of the season, forget who the quarterback is. That quarterback plays extraordinarily well, goes into New Orleans, a top-five team, and wins, plays the defending Super Bowl champion Eagles and wins, and let's imagine they play one of the top five teams also in the NFL, the Steelers, and wins. How can that person, tell us listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, is there any way Ryan Fitzpatrick is not the starter in week four when Jameis Winston comes back? Oh, I think he would have to be. I I mean, yeah, it's it's a quarterbacking controversy I don't think you thought Tampa Bay would have, but I, I, I don't. I think the prob- probably the solution or, or what they'll implement is he'll just I, I, you, you, if he throws for another four touchdowns and four hundred plus yards against Pittsburgh and man I would hope for that to happen. Um, you you've got to ride that hot hand. I think. I, I mean I I don't know if that's actually analytically the right solution, um, but I think psychologically for co- you know for risk averse coaches you have I you can't. You can't bench him at that well, point. Well, so let me ask you a question. If you were sitting there working for, let's say, Tampa Bay, and you were going to look at this analytically, what are the factors you would weigh in your mind? Because here's the way I think about it. So we all know, matter of fact, before we got on the air, you showed me the, the I'll call it the Ryan Fitzpatrick circle of life, where yeah. he goes to a team, pl- uh, some the starter gets hurt or gets suspended, he, comes he plays, in, he looks plays amazing. well, then he sucks, then he gets traded, yeah. and he goes to somebody else. So you know, I hate to put it this way, maybe it's true, maybe it's not. I don't believe, even as well as the Bucks have looked, that Ryan Fitzpatrick is going to start for 16 games and no. lead the Buccaneers to the promised uh, land. I mean, I mean, certainly we have a lot of data on Ryan Fitzpatrick. He's been in the league 14 years, and the data we have suggests he's a very high-variance performer. And so, I mean, it's I think it's working out perfectly for Tampa Bay because they're somehow getting some of that upside, the upside part of that variance. But he's going to basically... 
at some point during this season have a couple down games, and that's probably when they'll replace him. So how do you think about it? Matter of fact, how do we think about So you're talking about maybe a concept of he's got some overall mean, let's call yeah. it, and we've got a pretty good estimate of what that is. He's going to revert back towards his mean at some point. But how do you – let's imagine you're, on again, on the analytics team of Tampa Bay. Let's say he has one bad game. Is it like, well, here goes Ryan Fitzpatrick again, let's bring Jameis in? Or like, how much evidence would you need to see to know that, you know what, I hate to say it, but it's back to the old Ryan yeah. Fitzpatrick. No, it's not going to be the 400-yard guy anymore. And, and I, I think that's a great sort of analytical question. I mean, just intuitively, I think it would have to be depend on what that what that stumbling you know game was like. I mean, does he throw five interceptions against Cleveland or something like that? Or does he end up... You know, by the I'm way, lo- who, lose, I, lose, like perform. You know, having like you know losing the game for the team, but like at the last minute against a, 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 a Atlanta or some actually good team. Well, what type? Let me ask you a question. So we're obviously besides being a sports show or an analytics show, what are the kind of metrics you would look at? Like you talk about interceptions, but let's both agree to that. That's kind of I hate to say it. That's you know nineteen nineties NFL stats. Yeah. Would you look at yards per game, yards per well, pass I mean, attempt? I, would you look at you know, completion percentage. Would you look at? You know, they have advanced metrics now. On- and, I, and I think if if, I, if I'm you know Tampa Bay and making this decision, I'm looking at the most advanced metrics we have, which is probably things like you know the 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 Pro Football Focus kind of grading for the game. So it really depends on. I, I mean, you said your, uh, yourself that the one sort of interception, for example, that he had in the last game really shouldn't even count as an interception. And let me just say, by and, the way, there were two other balls that were dropped. I and mean, he was 27 for 33 in the yeah. game. In my view, he was 29 for 33 yeah. in the game. I, I mean, and, and as time Bay, you can take that view and you can kind of take a more nuanced perspective on his performance beyond these kind of summary stats that you've sort of acknowledged. I mean, things like interceptions are only partially the consequence, you know, Particular particular interceptions are certainly the fault of the quarterback, but a lot of them are faults of the wide receivers or or you know just kind of bad luck. And you can take that luck and 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 kind of receiver you know error out of your calculations if you're using more advanced statistics. Well, here we're here on Wharton Moneyball on Sirius XM Radio Business uh, Business Radio by Sirius XM uh, Channel One Thirty Two. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here this morning with my co-host Shane Jensen. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. So, besides the Buccaneers, I wanted something else caught my eye, which was the Cleveland Browns. Now, let me say why they've caught my eye, and I have a specific statistical question for you. So, as you know, uh, the first week of the season, they tied the Pittsburgh Steelers, which is rare. A tie is rare, although apparently not that rare, given Green Bay and New Orleans just tied. Minnesota, yeah. Uh, Yeah, uh, sorry, Minnesota. Just sorry. Yeah, New Orleans uh, won, luckily, which we'll get to in a second. Um, We also have, uh, they had, but in that game, they could have won the game and had a field goal blocked. The Browns played New Orleans this last week. They were down 18-12 to 12 with 30 seconds left, scored a touchdown, and missed the extra point. Mm-hmm. So the question, which would have probably won the game, let's assume. So at some point, I mean, people use the word cursed, people use the word choking, but without thinking of, let's call it the human side of it, if one wanted to apply statistical methods and say, are they losing or in some sense tying more games than they should have, how would one look at this and say, you know what, they really are underperforming in the big moments? How well, would one think about that? I, I mean, I think the way I would think about it is I would sort of take you know, particular sort of 
other measures of in-game performance, just, you know, points, you know, points scored and points allowed, for example. Yeah. And, you know, I could fit a model on how much points scored and points allowed predict wins. You know, and this is kind of what we do in in baseball and basketball, whatever. We have, like, you know, the famous Pythagorean theorem for linking runs scored, runs allowed to your win percentage. And then you can look at teams that kind of systematically are underperforming or overperforming, you know, in terms of, you know, the number of wins that you would expect them to have given their other in-game metrics. And that's where I think the sort of bad luck slash, you know, I mean, obviously bad kicking of Cleveland would really stand out because Cleveland are, is playing offensive and defensively like a team that should at least probably be 1-1. Right. And instead, they're 0-1-1. Now, of course, it's small sample sizes, but just to, for our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, just to be clear on what Shane's suggesting, there's a well-known formula that relates expected number of wins to points scored and points allowed, but you've even suggested, let's call that this level one of the analysis. You've suggested a level two, which is, let's also now understand which in-game metrics predict those things, yeah. and so there's kind of a two-level analysis you want to do, which is, given their points scored and points allowed... How are they performing? Yep. And then, at the second level, are they scoring the right number of points and the right and giving up the right number of points allowed? Given the, I'll call it the more granular metrics we're seeing about the game. Yeah, that's right. And I, uh, you know, I mean, I've I've watched a little bit of Cleveland. I mean, I watched them in Pittsburgh do their best to both lose that game, um, and obviously, I, I did watch the end of the New Orleans Cleveland game as well. And I, I mean obviously frustrating because they are playing i mean at least averagely i mean i mean you know they 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 played right. competitively in both those games and again the expectation coming out of those games i would have put them at something like one and one at, le- at least winning one of those games the yeah. trouble is it is kind of binary right you take this sort of you know they they probably gave you know they you know they played about 50% as well or, or they they at least should have had an expectation of a half win in each of those games, but the the realization is you never get a half. Well, the other well, you do get a half and a tie. Oh, yeah, That's so. sort of a half. The other the other thing that I thought would be an interesting analysis to do is, like I assume when they let's just do a very simple math when they tied the score at eighteen all against New Orleans with let's say a minute left, about to kick the extra point. I think the success percentage of an extra point has to be ninety yeah. percent, right? So let's even just say let's officially imagine it was a game ending kick. Which it wasn't, but let's imagine it was. They had a 90% win probability. They lost the game. So you could start looking at in-game win percentages, start comparing that to outcomes and say, wow, they had a 40-yard kick against the Steelers that was blocked. 40-yard kicks are probably made 80-85% of the time minimum. They've had a 90% win percentage or more on an extra point. They didn't win that game. So at some point, could you not compare the final outcomes to, I don't know, maybe it's the maximum in-game win percentage and say, wow, whatever's happening in the last two minutes overtime, etc., that's, you know, that, that's costing them in the game. Yeah. No, no, I, I mean, now that you bring that up, kind of looking at that last two minutes, trying to break it down and attribute some kind of almost, win, you know, win, win, win probability change or something like that relative to expectations or norms, I mean, that could be a way of, I mean, I would love some kind of metric for coaching, like, because uh, I do think coaches vary tremendously in 
and their ability to manage Look, the clock lot of people, at the end of the game and stuff yep. like that. And this could be a way of perhaps trying to capture some of that. A lot of people, of course, have criticized Hugh Jackson over the years, but you know he didn't miss that extra point. No, he that's didn't right. get that field goal blocked. Which interesting is everything we've talked about. Matt Matt Datz, our producer, just put he up did the make Browns some also. very questionable decisions in the Pittsburgh game. Very very questionable decisions. I, I know I completely agree with that. But that that's another thing I wanted to talk to you about. So. Do they have a quarterback controversy in Cleveland? So we have Tyrod Taylor, who, by the way, has been playing reasonably well. Yeah. He certainly, by the way, he's proven to me, at worst, he's a very good backup quarterback in the mm-hmm. NFL. Of course, you have Baker Mayfield, who you drafted. So do you see it getting to a point where, look, I'm not saying Cleveland Stevens over. It's not over. They're 0-1-1. and you know, they're the same record as the Pittsburgh Steelers, and I don't yeah. think we think the Pittsburgh Steelers season is over. So is there a quarterback controversy in Cleveland, or do you see a time where they're just like, look, I mean, Tyrod Taylor, his upside is what it is. Baker yeah, Mayfield. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think what we've seen, I mean, obviously some heartbreaking kind of the ways in which they've lost or tied these games have been a little bit heart, heartbreaking and frustrating because it could have easily gone the other way. But I don't think uh, I would guess that the Cleveland franchise the people, management, and coaches haven't seen anything this season that's changed their outlook on the season relative to what they decided going into the season. I mean, they kind of, they seem to decide going into the season, well, we've got Tyrod as this kind of, you know, placeholder quarterback for Baker Mayfield. He's obvious, Baker Mayfield's obviously the long-term answer for us, a Maybe. quarterback. We're um, going to find out. <laughs> we're not. It's, it's, we're not clear about that, but we're going to find out. Right. And and but I. I mean, I think they probably went into the season being like, well, we'll probably give Tyrod at least a half a season, if not a full season, here, and Baker Mayfield can kind of develop as a backup for that season, and then you know probably the team is his next season. Well, and I, I. I think Tyrod's as you've sort of implied, Tyrod's exactly what they've kind of expected him to be. Right. I mean, he's. He's, you know, he's a little bit of an interesting case because he just seems to be sort of a relatively average, maybe slightly below average yeah. starting well, quarterback. Well, let me just, our producer, Matt Thatch, just thank you, Matt, push put up on our screen Tyrod Taylor's stats for the first two games. So let me just add them up in total because they've been basically the same. He's 37 for 70. Now, last time I checked, 35 for 70 is half of your passes. So he's barely completing above half of his mm-hmm. passes. He's got two touchdowns, two interceptions, and he's thrown for averaging about 220 yards a game. That's at best. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's below that's a that's, slightly that's below, below average. average. You don't cut the starting, guy. But. Exactly. I mean, below. he's a slightly below average starting quarterback. Um, but that I, I feel like that's how we viewed him two games ago as well, right? I mean, I so I, I'm not sure if I'm Cleveland, I'm really updating my beliefs or, or changing my beliefs drastically about well, who Tyrod Taylor is relative to Baker Mayfield and how the season's going to go. I must admit, uh, just your con- your contrast of Tyrod Taylor and Ryan Fitzpatrick is interesting to me. And let me say why. Because we agree, neither one of them is necessarily the quarterback of the future for yep. either of their teams. I still hearken back to your comment, which I fully agree with. Ryan Fitzpatrick is high variance. Oh, yeah. And at some point, yeah. you want high variance. Because look... You know if you bring in Tyrod Taylor, you know, at the end of the day, let's say he starts eight games. You're not going seven and one. You're just not. Yeah. And you're not going six and two. Maybe you go three and five, four and four, whatever it is. But with Ryan Fitzpatrick, you know, he's got a history of this. You could go five and oh, six and oh to start it's the season. True. And, and, I, and, and I mean that's the thing is high variance will work for you in short enough blocks, basically. You can't 
play, I don't think, an entire season with a high-variance quarterback and really hope to achieve success. I mean, you know, you, you, you hit a high-variance quarterback at the right time, you win the Super Bowl. Right. Uh, but, I mean, I again, it, it's clear that have I think the Eagles also know that Nick Foles is a high variance quarterback and you know having watched him win the Super Bowl very few people in the organization or the city was convinced oh well no this is the guy we have to hitch our long-term prospects to rather than this much like lower variance Carson Wentz yeah people want to forget by the way you remember when Nick Foles was here his first time in Philadelphia didn't he have something like 24 touchdowns and two interceptions? I well, mean, and he has the record for most touchdowns in a game that Pat Patrick Mahomes almost almost equalized. I think it was equal, seven, right? Seven, seven, seven right. touchdowns so in one game. Nick Foles, can he's get in the hot. Hall of Fame for that, right? Yeah, he's in the Hall of Right, not as a player, but his game is in yeah. the Hall of Fame. So this is Wharton Moneyball here on Sirius XM One Thirty Two Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Professor of Statistics Shane Jensen. If you want to join the conversation, we're talking about what caught our eye in sports. We're talking football, but we're certainly going to move on to baseball and other sports. Please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. And for those of you listening on the radio, of course, um, don't. Don't punch yourself. Don't punch the radio or anything. Thank you, Matt, for correcting me. Nick Foles had 27 touchdowns and two interceptions, uh. not 24 and two. I remember it was some big number and yeah. some little number. And I remember the number two, but uh, he, he certainly was hot. But then you remember, he was terrible. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just think that there are kind of quarterbacks like this. Ryan Fitzpatrick being, I think, one of the most notable ones for having this high-variance you know, he, he'll put together these four or five amazing games, and you'll maybe convince yourself that this is something that real, he can sustain right. long term, and I just don't think it is. And I mean, we also, in part, maybe advanced metrics would be telling on this, we don't know even how much of these first couple games is his own contribution variance-wise. He has looked good out there, but as you sort of said, he well, was barely, he is number he was one barely in, touched. He's number one in QBR, yeah. that we know. Um, he's number one in completion percentage. He's number one by far in yards per attempt and yards per catch. I mean, mm -hmm. he's after, yeah. I think it's something like 14 yards per completion. I mean, he's wow. way, I mean, yeah, as you know, that's a phenomenal number. Yeah. He's not He's not completing 75% of his passes on dink and dunks. He's throwing the ball down the field. And that says to me that he's not being pressured very Correct. much, which is a good thing, obviously, from Tampa Bay's perspective, but... Part of his kind of this this variance that we're seeing is probably that they've really improved well, their O line play. Well, maybe. So let, I want to ask you that, and let's move on. I mean, we still talk about the Bucks, but I want to more make a more general point here about the NFL, and then I want to spend the last part of our first segment here on Wharton Money talking about a little bit of baseball. Um, the Buccaneers are averaging two point six yards per carry. Now I know they're saying we're a passing league. Is there? A, you say the O line play is improved. Great, it's improved maybe in pass protection. But they're averaging two and a half, basically, yards a carry. Can a team, in your view, win in the NFL over a long season if they average two and a half yards a carry? I, I don't think so. I, I don't think you can sustain it against the good teams because the good teams will take that away from you. It will, will, take, will, will basically sit on the pass. So, I mean, I, I think you do actually have to have a better running game than that in order to have success against good teams. Yeah, so that was just the one thing when I was trying to think about how do I say the offensive line is good. On yeah. the one hand, they're protecting Fitzpatrick great. They've only given up two sacks. 
but the Bucks can't run the football. Yeah, and I mean, I I, I should sort of say that I, I don't I don't mean to imply that somehow the Philadelphia Eagles are no longer a good team and that you can run a, you know no. have no running game against them and succeed. I just think Philadelphia had a particularly bad game at the same time as Ryan Fitzpatrick had a good one. So let me ask you another question, another interesting, obviously a sports and statistics question here. So clearly, I think most people would agree in the first two games in the NFL, the Rams probably looked the best among the teams. They looked pretty amazing. They- Rams... Definitely. Vikings also look very impressive to but me. But let's, let's, for the moment, just for my argument's sake, let's say the Rams have looked the best among the NFL teams, and let's say the Cardinals have looked the worst. We could argue the Cardinals or the Bills, but either way, they yep. both look bad. Yep. We're sitting here two games into the season, so let's imagine someone said to you, Shane, what's the probability at the end of the season, given the data we have now, let's say the regular season, the Rams are still the highest-ranked team, What's the probability the Cardinals slash Bills are the lowest ranked team? How certain, how much certainty do you put right now on the Rams or the Cardinals? And my guess is, I'm just guessing, tell me if I'm wrong, you have more certainty at the bottom end than you do at the top end. But how do you feel about the certainty of rankings? No, I mean, it's interesting. I'm not sure I've actually thought about things this way, like this kind of asymmetry before. But I do feel like I, I have more personal certainty in the Bills slash Cardinals being the bottom two teams in the league this year than I do with the Rams and whoever being the top two teams this year. Why why do you feel that way? I mean, I feel the same way. And as a matter of fact, I I hate this this way. I'm pretty certain about my degree of certainty. Yeah, I I, I think it's, it's somehow I think we sort of, there's an asymmetry to sort of like luck and success, right? I, I, I think... Somehow we, we, we look at, say, Tampa Bay, and we say, well, they are, by record, one of the top teams in football right now, but we attribute a lot of luck or variance to that. We don't we don't, we're not particularly confident that that's sustainable, whereas I think incompetence and terrible quarterbacking, etc., we see as more sustainable and stable. And maybe that's not actually the case, but I think psychologically, this is how we think about things. Like, we, we, we don't really foresee any... There's lots of mechanisms I can create or narratives I can create where the L.A. Rams, for example, go down over the course of the season, some key injuries, etc. It's harder for me to create a story where Buffalo moves up. Right. What what would have to happen Yeah, where is that going to come from? It's definitely not coming from the quarterback. It's not coming certainly from Nathan Peterman. Maybe Josh Allen it somehow could come from, but I just think that that is... uh, We we kind of... in, In addition, I mean, I think... We knew going into the season that the Cardinals and Bills were probably quite likely. We've seen everything in the first couple of games to confirm the belief that they are really bad teams. And again, there's no real—I don't see paths with very high probability for them to move up. So in our last few minutes here in our first segment, we might as well stay on the NFL, and we're going to have an opportunity to talk college football. We're going to have an opportunity to talk baseball, a lot of baseball today as well. Um, there was another game of somewhat consequence played this last week. It was played in Jacksonville. Oh, man, yeah. That, I mean, it was very consequential well, yeah. in terms of playoff seeding. Well, that's what then. I wanted to ask you yeah. about. So right now, obviously, Jacksonville's now 2-0. and The Patriots are 1-1. and Jacksonville beat the Patriots, which means... And they're not playing again this season. They don't play each other twice in a season. They're not in the same division. And so they, since since, have a two-game lead. Let's imagine... Forget... Let's even pretend maybe Jacksonville's one of the elite teams. Maybe they're not. If New England had to go into Jacksonville in, let's say, the AFC Championship game, as opposed to the other way, which it was last year, how confident are you? What probability do you put 
on the Patriots winning that game. Much I mean, more than sixty percent, more if, than two thirds. If the teams look are, are if the teams look like they did they do right now, I I would I know. I mean I would I would definitely take Jacksonville in that game. At home. I mean they just beat the Patriots and, and beat them relatively handily. Um so no, I think I, I would say Jacksonville would ha- who knows what how Vegas would do this, but I would personally put Jacksonville by you know, six points. Something wow. Like that. Well, let's yeah. see right now. Let's just take a quick look, by the way, at the Massey Peabody system. Uh, the Massey Peabody system would have them basically a pick em on a neutral field. Interesting. So it would have Jacksonville. And by the way, Jacksonville's slightly higher rated, although let me just say, using the margin of error in the Massey Peabody system, they're both equally rated. Jacksonville's yeah. at four, New England's at eight, but they're, a, they're at the same place. Yeah. So essentially, you would have it as a pick em game. And by the way, Jacksonville went up about a, three quarters of a point on the Massey Peabody system from winning last week. New England went down about a point. So basically, in the Massey Peabody system, last week's game was like a two point swing yeah. game. Yeah, no, and I mean, I think, yeah, and I, and I, I do think that it's it. It also, I think that game kind of confirms some of my my own opinions about New England and their off season. I mean, I we appear to have gone the direction that we've gone the last couple seasons where we just absolutely load up our offense and just don't pay much attention to our defense. And our defense, the the New England defense, is just not very good. It's not very athletic. It's not very fast. And when you watch Jacksonville play, you're like, oh, that's what a fast athletic defense looks like. Okay. Yeah, and did you have just maybe the last thing, any updating in your view? I wanted to ask you this because I know you follow not just football but the quarterback position very much. Any update on Blake Bortles in your mind? Like, huh. at what point, because yeah. as we know, the guy's been the, the, the whipping post, if you'd like, of the Jacksonville Jaguars. Um, you know, everyone has said he's not the franchise quarterback. You know, this guy's a placeholder. He looked darn good on Sunday. He did. He did. So uh, any update in your well, view of Blake Bortles? I, no, I mean, I will update when Blake Bortles has a game where he has, you know, a substantial pass rush against him and still you know, passes for 300-plus yards and four touchdowns. I mean, that's... So, no, I guess I haven't really updated on Blake Bortles because I, I, I just feel like the Patriots didn't really challenge him. You know, in, in, in a way that a good... A, a, a truly good elite or even very good quarterback, when you challenge him, when you give him a pass rush, you know, like Brady in the Super Bowl, you know... He faced an amazing pass rushing defense look, and still cut him up for four five hundred five yards. No, I was about to say that. I mean, the more you look back at that performance in the oh, Super Bowl gonna, by Tom Brady, it's one of it, his best playoff performances ever. But he lost the best game ever by anybody. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, against that Eagles defense to throw for five hundred yards, it's and, unbelievable. Look, the offense didn't lose the game. No, no, and I mean, then they turn around in the off season and just give you know basically their first two draft picks went to offensive players. The you know I mean everybody in New England right now is very excited because Josh Gordon just got traded to New England, and I I, I think that's a great pickup. But you know my you know my friends are all te- texting me to congratulate me, and I'm texting back, can he play linebacker? <laughs> Very funny. Uh, I, I don't know. Um, we'll, we'll find out if he can still play wide receiver, although the first game in Cleveland suggested the guy can still play. So this has been the first one quarter of Wharton Moneyball, the first half hour, if you'd like. Uh, we still have 90 minutes to go. We've got guests coming up in the 830 hour, guests coming up the 9 o'clock hour. So stay with us and join us after the break. 
Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports, business, and analytics collide. My favorite three topics. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, professor of statistics, Shane Jensen. Some combination of the two of us are here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, and replayed throughout the week. And thanks to our sound engineer and associate producer, Danielle Bruno, we not only are on iTunes, SoundCloud, and lots of other places, but we have music to bring us back after the first half hour. Thank you, Danielle. And of course, if you want to join the conversation, it's very easy. All you have to do is pick up the phone and call 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Or you can email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Or, of course, you can tweet at us and follow us on at WMoneyBall. So, Shane, obviously, we enjoy talking to each other, but, of course, guests are a huge part of the show. Uh, we're very fortunate to have a longtime friend of the show, probably been on the show as much as any of our guests have ever been on the show. Uh, this is Neil Payne. Neil is a senior writer and general editor at 538, something that I probably spend as much time now on 538, both on 538 sports and 538 yeah. politics, than I spend on any website uh, now. Uh, Neil covers a wide range of sports, focusing obviously on sabermetrics, statistical analysis, and of course, all of us follow Neil on Twitter at at Neil underscore Payne. So, Neil, welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with Shane Jensen. Hey, guys. How you doing today? Uh, we're doing great. I'm a Buccaneers fan, so let me enjoy my two weeks of fun while I have it. But no, we're doing well. Yeah, Fitz Magic is doing well. So we have lots and lots of topics to talk to you about, Neil. But, you know, we spent the first half hour talking about football, which we want to get back to. But I really want to start talking about baseball a little bit on the show today. So um, I have my colleague here, Shane Jensen, Mr. Boston Red Sox. I'm, of course, a Yankees fan. But what I wanted to talk to you about is how do you see this Red Sox year? I mean, from the beginning, we've been talking about this almost seems like a historic year from the Red Sox. From a statistical analytics perspective, how are you looking at the current Red Sox year? Yeah, I mean, in terms of uh, just the record alone jumps out to you. Uh, right now, our model has them to win 110 games, which would be uh, the first time a team cracked that 110 mark since the 2001 Seattle Mariners, who won 116. So we're talking about, uh, in the grand scale of MLB history, one of these historically great regular season teams. I think they, they've already kind of sealed that up. Uh, now, in terms of whether they are even the best team in baseball, might be up for debate. I mean, the Astros are right up there. The Astros, uh, I believe, have a better run differential. They do. They uh, do right the now. Red yeah. Sox, uh, which is always interesting. You know, but, but it's kind of... You know, six of one, half dozen of the other there because these two teams are way, way, way out in front of the pack. And this might be the most, like, top two heavy uh, season in baseball history if we just look at these two, you know, monolithic teams at the top and then everybody else is sort of trying to, to kind of fit in uh, beneath them. So I'm, even though this is Eric Bradlow speaking, I'm going to channel my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen, here um, in the following sense. So let's assume the wild card games are now over. There's eight teams left in baseball. Is it any? Do you see it? And how does your statistical modeling at 538? Is it just the classic Shane Jensen coin flipping model? Everybody's one and eight, or do you see the Red Sox and Astros as having a greater chance? But of course, I, just for our listeners here, for the, I know they know this. I assume they know this. The Red Sox, the Astros, and the Yankees are all in the American League, so only one of them can go to the World Series. So how are you viewing? You know, is it one and eight for everybody, or how do you view it this year? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's quite one and eight because these teams are so good relative to the pack that it's probably uh, maybe 
the, the top teams have a much better chance this year than they would in previous years. But, yeah, in terms of this chance of, of winning the World Series, not just like, you know, getting to the World Series or if we're talking about the, the AL, uh, some historically great team is going to be left out of the World Series uh, no matter what happens because they can't both make it. Uh, and so, you know, if I was a Red Sox fan right now, I would be feeling sort of like, okay, this regular season thing is great and this has been a historic team, but in some ways it sort of increases the burden of expectation in the playoffs, uh, which, you know, maybe it isn't a coin flip, but it's definitely more of a coin flip than uh, most other sports, if not any other sport, if we're talking about the odds of the the best team winning uh and and like i said earlier it's not even 100 percent certain uh it's far from it actually that the red sox are actually the best team in terms of the most talented team in baseball so yeah in some ways i don't, I don't know how i'd be feeling i'd be feeling kind of nervous just because we know that baseball is not a very deterministic sport and that a lot of things can happen in the postseason that can undo in the opinions of a lot of people uh what what was an actually really great regular season and you know maybe it's a time to start changing the hearts and minds of people and how they view uh, the, the relative weight of the postseason relative to the regular season, but I don't think that's going to happen. I think, uh, you know, rings are still uh, what does it for, for most fans and, and observers. So who just, just, just a simple yes, no, or not a yes, no, a pick, either or question. If I had to give you one of the following two teams to win the World Series right now, who would you take, the Cubs or the Red Sox? I would take the Red Sox. Even though they still have to get past the Astros and potentially the Yankees, maybe even both of them, you would rather be the Red Sox than the Cubs. Yeah, because, you know, the the Dodgers are in there, too. Uh, they're probably better than the Cubs. You know, they've picked things up enough that they're pro- probably going to make the playoffs uh, over the past couple weeks. Uh, and so, you know, if you'd asked me maybe... I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, maybe I would have said the Cubs. But, um, yeah, I think the, the talent edge for the Red Sox is so great that it sort of, uh, you know, more than makes up the difference. But it's a lot closer than maybe you would think when you just look at that Red Sox record. And I'm, I'm an effect size guy. Let's imagine we're sitting here a month and a half from now and it's the Red Sox or the Astros in the World Series. How much of a favorite in your mind are they? Is it two-thirds, one-third, which, as you know, would be a massive effect size? Because I, whenever we say this team's a favorite, I always like to give our fans a sense of, are they a 10% favorite, 20% favorite? In your mind, if it's Red Sox or Astros, which you said are two historically great teams against good teams, Cubs, Dodgers, they're, but they're not historically good, how do you see it? Two-thirds, one-third, or is that way too high? Um, no, I mean, I think that would be getting in the neighborhood for sure. And, and basically in baseball, in any seven-game uh, series, if you see one team that has like a greater than 60% chance of winning that series or a two-thirds chance of winning that series, that's like a crazy big mismatch uh, just because of the way that baseball is that, you know, the, the best team in any given game doesn't really have that great of a chance to win relative to other sports that we see. But here's a little number that might help put this in, in some context is – at our uh, in our projection system, we have the Red Sox at 26% to win the World Series, and we have the Astros at 24%. So that means that together they make up 50% uh, to win the World Series, and then the rest of the field is also at 50%. So it's basically one of those two teams is just as likely well, that, to win the World Series yeah, as that, anyone else. Yeah, that entirely refutes my, is it one-eighth, 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 one-eighth? You just said they've got 50%, and the other six teams have 50%, which, by the way, just for our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, that's very divergent from one-eighth for everybody. 
And uh, Neil, I've got a kind of a question because I mean, I know that uh, th- those projection systems that you just mentioned, those probabilities are based on uh, an ELO type system where you take into account the wins and losses, uh, the winning the winning percentage of the teams. Do you think what are there any kind of elements of any of the playoff contending teams that you kind of think that model is most missing on? Uh, you know, I think in terms of the things that jump out that models like that miss. You know, we talk about bullpen quality. We talk about, you know, situational hitting. I don't know how much of that is actually predictive, but these are things that around the edges, maybe in a postseason series, do matter. Uh, but the the simple truth is also, and you guys probably know this too, is that people have been trying to find that sort of magic bullet of, oh, well, what's like team construction that after you control for something like ELO or for after you control for run differential even will will tell you something extra about how to predict the, the playoffs in baseball. And to my knowledge, I don't think anyone's really still found that, you know, and it's not for lack of trying. Uh, and so, you know, there are certain elements to – uh, teams that, you know, on paper you would think would put them ahead uh, and, and that you could kind of count on. But I don't know how much of that actually matters in the crucible of a really short series. So how do you, this Eric again, how do you build in what I call the star pitcher model in baseball, which is maybe Chris Sale goes off and wins three starts. Maybe they start him. They, the Red Sox probably wouldn't because they have a deeper pitching staff. But he wins three. Justin Verlander comes in and just shuts you down in a series. Clayton Kershaw, although he hasn't done it in the postseason as much, comes in and shuts you down. How do you kind of build in what I call the one-guy-takes-all model? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great kind of criticism of models like ELO and, and the things that we have is we do have a starting pitcher adjustment, and we even shortened the, the staff uh, when we're kind of running this Monte Carlo simulation of the playoffs where each pitcher has a rating, and they, that contributes to the team's ELO in a given game, which uh, determines the win probability in the game. So when your ace is able to pitch more frequently, obviously it's going to increase your odds of winning and kind of make the, the favorites or the teams that have the, the great ace starters more likely to win than they would be if you just use the regular season, hey, this guy goes every five days type of model. But at the same time, I don't think uh, there's any way to kind of work in, like maybe you could sort of build in a variable where it's like, okay, if this is an elimination game and, you know, the the ace has a certain rating and he's on a certain number of days rest, then he could pitch at a certain amount of diminished, uh, you know, quality once he's in that game. You start getting into a lot of these like, okay, well, what's the sample size on situations where this has happened and like, how do we actually model that? And so that's, you know, a way in which real life is a lot more complicated than we try to represent in some of these models, but I would be curious as to how much, you know, working in some kind of, okay, all hands are on deck for this elimination game, and so you bring in uh, your, your ace, whether as the starter on short rest or even in relief late in a game, because uh, uh, Kershaw had one of those, I, I think, um, last postseason or a couple postseasons ago also. And so, you know, th- that, to my knowledge, hasn't been modeled in some of these systems, but I'd be curious how much it actually adds in terms of predictiveness. Yeah, and I mean one one obviously kind of test case for that that would be the wild card elimination games, right? I mean that's 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 going to be a scenario where those two teams are presumably going to um I mean I doubt either of the teams participating in the wild card game are going to hold back a particular resource, you know, just to, for for the series to to because they know that they have to get out of that game. The bullpen question is one that always intrigues me in baseball because I think <clears throat> 
that's one where um, I think the the narrative we've created over some of the last few World Series winning teams is that the bullpen really is the key to playoff success. That that I, I think that's the story that we most convince ourselves of how a playoff constructed team can can kind of I guess have a, a a predictably positive residual can can kind of exceed what we might think just based on the winning record. Do you sort of feel like have you looked at the kind of literature recent literature on all bullpens is it as consistently predictive of of postseason success as I think we've kind of convinced ourselves I remember the Royals a couple years back we convinced ourselves that that was their the key to their success is is that something that's consistent across the years or is that just a, a, a kind of retrospective story we tell ourselves well yeah I mean that might be the difference between sort of looking at it and, and saying well okay team X won the World Series okay well why did team X win the World Series and you start digging into the reasons why and probably most often or far more often than not you can kind of say when you're looking back and trying to dissect the postseason performance for that team that's like conditional on them winning the World Series you'll say oh they're bullpen yeah, great. that's right. Uh, right. It's like 100% of the teams that win the World Series have a great bullpen contribution in retrospect. Now, does that necessarily mean the same thing as saying, okay, well, on the eve of the postseason, we know how good each of these bullpens are. Is that predictive of whether or not they'll win the World Series? And I, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I think from what I've read and what I've seen is that that goes into the sort of that crapshoot, uh, you know, bucket that that a lot of stats go into for predicting the playoffs, which is like, yeah, in retrospect, once we know who won the World Series, more often than not, the team that gets great bullpen performance is going to have a more successful uh, playoffs. But I don't know how much that really can tell us going forward when we're trying to predict a future playoff. So this is Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School. I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. We're being joined by Neil Payne, long time friend of the show, senior writer and general editor at 538. If you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Neil, before we leave baseball, because we want to also ask you about football, because there's a lot going on in the NFL. How much should, like, I'm, besides the fact that I have tickets to the game if it's going to happen, which is the Yankees wildcard game, how much should I care that they get home field in the wild card game against Oakland? Or is this something I'm just blowing up in my own mind because I want to go to Yankee Stadium and eat hot dogs and drink beer and celebrate with the Yankees fans? Is, or is this, is this actually meaningful? Or is that basically a coin flip game? It doesn't even matter. Well, you know, I mean, first of all, what's wrong with going to the game and enjoying uh, popcorn and, and beer with your, your fellow fans, right? No, I'm going to do that if the game happens. But I just mean, is it like if we end up going to Oakland, although at the moment we have a three-game lead on the loss column, I think we're ahead. In, I know we win the tiebreaker against Oakland, so we're in decent shape. But should I, if we go to Oakland, is it like instead of, I don't know, maybe 52-48 Yankees, it's 52-48 Oakland? Is that the order of magnitude, you think? Yeah, it might be. So I did a little bit of research on what the home field or court or ice, whatever the sport may be, uh, effect is for different sports. And so, for instance, you know, in the regular season, baseball teams at home win about 54% of the time. So it's like a four percentage point boost. In the playoffs, they tend to win historically 54.2% of the time. So that really big not a difference. That much of a change <laughs> from from the uh, from the the regular season. What's really interesting is that baseball is like you know baseball and hockey together. I think are, are two sports in in a category of they're very much less deterministic. And one of the ways that shows is that home 
advantage is really not all that much of a big deal, and it doesn't change that much in the postseason. If you look at the other end of the spectrum, you look at uh, the NFL. So during the regular season, NFL teams at home win 57% of the time, 7 percentage point boost. In the playoffs, home teams win 65% of the time. And I should note, this is after controlling for the fact that better teams tend to have more home games in the playoffs. So I controlled for the uh, at sports reference. They have the simple rating system, which is just this sort of uh, you know linear program model that spits out a rating for each team based on point differential adjusted for schedule. But basically, after you control for that even, football teams at home in the playoffs win 65% of the time or, or 12% more than they would be expected to. So there's a 5 percentage point boost in the playoffs for football teams, even relative to the regular season. And you see that in the NBA also, uh, about a 4 percentage point boost in the playoffs. So in the NBA in the playoffs, you're getting the home teams winning like 65% of the time or 14 percentage points more than would be expected based on their their ratings uh, relative to the regular season. So to me, that is uh, those two sports stand very much different from baseball and hockey as uh, they're much more deterministic and their playoffs are much more deterministic. And so baseball is, is really it's less of an effect. And home advantage is one of the ways in which we can kind of see just how deterministic a sport is because it's one of the ways in which there's like this built-in edge, whether it's because of officiating or the crowd uh, or a million different factors trying to you know explain why teams win at home. We know that they do, and, and that's sort of one of the ways we can measure uh, the effect that some demonstrable talent edge or, or structural edge has on a game uh, is by looking at how often the home team wins. I love that uh, the way you've just described that, Neil, which is no one debates that there is a home field advantage, and it's actually fairly consistent and robust over time. Now we just get to spend our statistical time trying to explain why it is, but we don't yeah. at least have to debate that it actually is a real phenomenon. You know, if you were to meta-analyze the data, which you—that's exactly what you're doing over years and sports—it's a fact. So now we just have to try to understand maybe why it's happening. And that's the hard question, right? Right. That's the harder question. Why? So, um, without you know, given we have maybe f- three or four minutes left, just quick take on football. What are you seeing in the NFL season right now? What has you excited and interested about what's going on in the NFL? Well, I mean, I'm really excited about the Kansas City Chiefs. I mean, who isn't? Uh, and especially the way Patrick Mahomes has played. Uh, we wrote a story about him and just how unique his situation was for first-time starters coming into uh, having a great supporting cast, and he sort of expanded upon that in the first few weeks. So very excited about that. Uh, and I'm also excited about your Tampa Bay Buccaneers, just in the sense that Ryan Fitzpatrick, and people have written this, but statistically – even if you look into some of the more advanced metrics, this is like the best two-game start any quarterback has had since the merger, which is insane for Ryan Fitzpatrick at age. How old is he? Like 35? 36, uh, yeah. 36, yeah. I was, <laughs> I was, I was under, uh, under counting his age. Um, and yet he's coming out and, and having this start to a season. Uh, and I think it's just it's a great storyline with Winston, you know, potentially coming back. And now is there a, is there a quarterback controversy? I mean, you could probably tell me more about that than, than I could. But uh, I, I just love these teams that sort of come out of the woodwork and, and have um, great starts this season. Well, let me, before I move to the defensive side of the ball, I'll just say with the Buccaneers, I think the answer is going to be by Deshaun Jackson and Mike Evans, who are their two star players. Deshaun Jackson said there's no way 
you bench Jameis, uh, bench uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick, and I'm waiting for Mike Evans, who one would argue one of the top five receivers in football, when he comes out and says, Fitzpatrick's my guy, I think Fitzpatrick's going to be playing in week four when Jameis is eligible. That's just my opinion. Um, let's talk about the defensive side of the ball. Um, we saw, you know, Shane and I have off the air have been talking about what was Oakland thinking in trading Khalil Mack? I mean, <laughs> oh my God, this guy's so a one-man good. wrecking crew. How do you, and also we have the Rams obviously spent a lot of money on Aaron Donald. How are you viewing defensive guys? Yeah, we, uh, I wrote a story about um, the, the big contracts that went to those specific guys uh, before the season. And we're talking about giving more than 50% of the cap in guarantees to one defensive player. Uh, obviously, that's spread out over multiple years, but it does tell you these are ridiculous contracts in terms of the, the precedent that it sets for defensive players. And I don't know if that's a paradigm shift or not, but I do think that, uh, especially in the case of the Rams, it's sort of fueled by this mentality that, okay, we've got a young quarterback who's on a far below market contract in Jared Goff. How do we use the tight window in which we're paying the most valuable asset, a quarterback, uh, one of the best quarterbacks in the game, much less than market value to maximize the rest of the roster? And I think that we're seeing that with a lot of teams. And we're Can't the Bears say the same? Can't the Bears say the same with Trubisky? You know, if he's their quarterback mm-hmm. of the future, oh, yeah. they've got him, and so low price. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and so I think that's the paradigm for team building, especially on defense now, is, look, you know, we, we are going to have to eventually pay quarterbacks some insane values down the line. And we've seen, you know, the quarterback uh, highest contract record was broken, what, like three times this offseason, four times? Uh, Jimmy Garoppolo, who barely had started, what, seven games in his career, was uh, was the all-time leader at one point. And so, you know, we're, we're seeing that teams – know that there's this ticking time uh, bomb on their quarterbacks when they have a young one and a good one. And then when we see them on the opposite side of that, so take Seattle. Seattle looked terrible uh, on Monday night the other day. And All right, well, Neil, I'm sorry, actually, sorry to cut you off, work. but we have to wrap up here. We're heading into a hard break. Um, we'd love you to come back here on Wharton Moneyball and spend hours with us, but thank you for your time. We've been talking to Neil Payne of 538. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Professor of Statistics Shane Jensen, some combination of the two of us, our friend and co-host Cade Massey, and our friend and co-host Adi Weiner here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, and replayed throughout the week. Of course, we're here on Sirius XM 132, and of course, we're a call-in show. If you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. So, Shane, we obviously just got off with Neil Payne, got off the phone with Neil Payne. He obviously had a lot to say about what's going on in the NFL uh, and also what's going on in the MLB. What was your major takeaway from his thoughts about the Red Sox, and you know, maybe they're not even the best team in the AL. How do you think about that, and how worried are you about a potential, I think, titanic matchup with the Astros? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, certainly I, I, it hit a real chord with me because he was talking just about how stochastic, how non-deterministic baseball really is. And at, at the playoffs, I mean, I, I guess it was, it, was, it was a little striking that he would even give the Red Sox or Astros something in the range of two-thirds, one-third sort of probabilities against any team in, in the World Series. So that Series. surprised you more than his 50% total 
for Red Sox and Astros. And he wasn't saying going to the World Series. He was saying win percentage. So he was giving them, you know, it's them against the field. Yeah. You know, I mean, I I, I also was a little surprised by that. I'd sort of been tracking that a little bit because I do follow those those kind of World Series predictions pretty closely. Um, and I, again, I, I, I guess I shrink more down to one half than, than than Neil even does, or than the models maybe even suggest you should, in the sense that I really do kind of view every playoff series as as kind of an opening of between two the teams the teams that make it to the playoffs in the MLB are good enough that I don't see enough distinction between them. But again. I don't have necessarily the perspective to gauge historically good teams. Well, here's the way. Let me just say the way, by the way, for those listeners who are in Wharton Mobile, let me tell you the envelope math that I do to myself. For me to have to believe 50%, and now that I think about it, I might believe it even more. Um, in my mind, there's two stages. Obviously, winning the AL, and then you got to make it to the World Series. So do I believe that the Red Sox or the Astros, let's say, one of the two of them, that com- sorry, combined, there's a 75% chance that they win the AL? I might believe that. Yeah. Then, if you take three quarters times two thirds, you're at fifty percent. Yeah. So, which of those two do you think is the? I'll call it the more ridiculous assumption: the three quarters assumption, or the two thirds assumption. So it's three quarters that the Astros or the, or Red, the Sox Red Sox are the representative in the World Series, and then conditional on one of them making the World Series. It's a two-thirds chance that they win, because that would lead you to 50%. Yeah, yeah. Three-quarters times two-thirds is a half. I, I guess the three-quarters part is the part that I think is it's just too high, because, I, I you know, I mean, the Yankees are going to be a 90, you know, high 90-win team. Maybe get to, if they go eight and four, it's 100. You know, and I mean, again, the, it, it's not even guaranteed the Yankees are going to be who the, one of those teams face, but most likely one of those teams is going to have to face the Yankees. And it's not like Cleveland's terrible. Um yeah, I just don't give those two teams three quarters of the way coming through the. By the AL. way, just just to remind, uh, just to remind us, maybe Matt can type it on the screen. I just they change the rules in baseball all the time. If the Yankees are the number one wild card team and beat Oakland, yeah. Do they play the Red Sox? Yes. Okay, so there is no rule anymore in baseball yeah, they, they, that you can't play the team in your own division. I, I believe that they, it, it would be the the Yankees. The, the winner of the wild card game plays the the, best uh, the, team. the, the team with the top record regardless. in their league, regardless of whether that's a divisional rival. All right, so I mean, think about this. I mean, so you know, I never feel sorry for the Red Sox, but they potentially are are sitting here: Yankees, Astros. Cubs, Dodgers. You know that's if you win that World Series, that's there's no cheap World Series yeah. if you get through those three. No, teams. that's right. I mean, I think you know, almost historically, probably there haven't been that, that many cheap kind of World Series paths, even otherwise as well. But I mean that it, that does seem particularly again with the AL being so stacked with top teams right now, it does seem particularly onerous to try and get through the American well, League. Well, I mean, I'm just doing, World I'm just looking year. at the number of wins. The Yankees have a very reasonable chance of getting to 100. The Astros, unless they collapse, are getting to 100. Yeah. So they're going to play 200 win teams on the way to the World Series. I mean, 100, I mean, I know Neil talked about it. I thought it was really fascinating the way he talked about 110 wins. Yeah. Let's not forget a hundred wins. I mean, the Yankees don't necessi- aren't necessarily going to have to go through both those teams. Though, you mean the Red Sox? The, uh, the Red Sox. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the Astros could lose. The to Astros the could lose to the yep. Indians. Absolutely. And by the way, 
I don't think the Indians are a horrible team either. By the way, by the no, way, they, no, we don't. We're not talking about them a lot because we're, they're not, you know, in the hundred win range. But they are obviously a very good team as well. And that's kind of that's always what I refer return to is psychologically. Oh. Every one of the teams in the playoffs is good, and you can make an argument that it should be pretty close to 50-50. You know, now you've talked all year about the strength of... As a matter of fact, you talked to Neil Payne about this, about the bullpen, and the strength we talked about, yep. about the Yankee bullpen. It's let retrospectively me, often what we attribute but, success well, to. Well, let me show. Let me tell you one interesting statistic from this year. So the Yankees' run differential is 158, Cleveland's is 154, and the Dodgers' is 153. Let's assume... Let's call those all the same. The Dodgers and Cleveland have 84 wins, and the Yankees have 92. So the Yankees have eight additional wins with essentially the same run differential as those two teams. I think you and I would say, yeah, it's Araldis Chapman... Dalen Batances, you know, and throw in all the other guys that the Robertson. I mean, that that's eight wins. Yeah, no, and I and I mean, I think again, it it, it when when you look back over history or at least recent history, and you've looked at how to, whether you know teams that have kind of really systematically overperformed their expectations based on you know if 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 you have a win percentage expectation based on run differential, some teams do systematically overperform, and it typically is the teams that have those amazing bullpens that can kind of grab you a couple extra wins because for most teams with mediocre bullpens you know at the end of the near the end of the game if it's a close game Don't it's essentially way. a co- coin flip and it, it taking some of that stochasticity out of the end of games and be, be kind of being but consistently you, amazing but it's not even that grab you a couple wins it's the yankees can manage towards that yeah. which is you know yep. if there's any doubt like it's the end of five innings should we keep severino in no, yeah. eh, no need. We'll just bring in the you know four guys that would be the number one closer on every other team for the sixth, seventh, eighth, and, and ninth. And I think once you start to start to look at the mechanisms by how a bullpen changes your in-game strategy, and then people look ahead to the playoffs, they're like, oh well, that means the Yankees are that much more hooked up for the playoffs because the playoffs are on all hands on deck kind of situation, and and they can depend on these bullpen guys. I just we've as Neil Payne himself pointed out that retro. When you look retrospectively, the teams that win the World Series have good bullpens. Whether it's prospective, where you can go in and say the team with the best bullpen is the one that's going to win the World Series, that I think is yeah, a that's little the, less right, clear. That's the other one. So, you know, there's a bunch of interesting things. I want to get to football, too, but there's a bunch of interesting, I'll call them facts, that have happened in baseball in the last couple of weeks. I wanted to throw them out to you one at a time. Maybe we'll toss the rapid-fire baseball round. Just get your reaction on each of them. So the first one is that um, DeGrom and Sale faced each other last Sunday, uh, Red Sox and the, I guess, the Mets. Yeah. Um, it was the first time since 1985, Doc Gooden against John Tudor, that two opposing pitchers with an ERA under two faced each other. Interesting. Did, does that mean anything to you as both a statistics guy and a baseball historian? I mean, I would, Is that I, meaningful to you at all? Yeah, like, I mean, wow. D- Dwight Gooden, yeah. Anytime you bring up Dwight Gooden, it's kind of meaningful. I, I would be interested if they w- it was at the sort of same point in the season, because I think it's... Well, at, it's, it's at least 100 innings pitched. Okay, so, so I this mean... So is, this yeah. is not like, you know, well... One game into the season. No, no, yeah, okay. So, I mean, I, I yeah, I think that is. I, I mean, certainly what DeGrom's been doing with the Mets this year is just unbelievable. I mean, say, I mean, Sale is, you know, I think the Cy Young winner in the AL. But DeGrom probably should win the Cy Young in the NL. We'll see well, if he we actually does it. Well, we talked about this last week. The only guy that could give him a run for his money is Scherzer. Yeah. Scherzer has, in the eyeball test, a much better win-loss. 
has yeah. an ERA like 2.1. I understand it's not 1.6 something, but yeah. it's really good. He's got a better whip, meaning Scherzer has a better whip. Okay. And so we and he has a better batting average against. Yeah. So we could make an argument that Scherzer may also yeah. win. But uh, you'd be fine with either of the two. How yeah, about I, that? Yeah, I, I would. I would definitely. Um, and so, no, I think it is. I, I mean, I think that type of situation is a little unprecedented. All right, so let's move to the next rapid fire question here. And again, if you have a rapid fire question for either Shane or myself, please call us at 1 844 Wharton. That's 1 844 942 7866. We love rapid fire types of questions. So, how rare do you think it is? Don't look down at your sheet. Right. How rare do you think it is? For a pitcher, now this is an arbitrary number, 12 games, but to win 12 games in their first five seasons. Like, how often do you think that happens? Someone to win 12 games. In each of their first five yeah, seasons. Yeah, so they have to win at least 12. At least 12 At least 12, 12 in each of their first five seasons. It's got to be pretty exceedingly rare right now in, the, in this day and age of, like, starters not going as far and stuff like that. I feel like 12 wins has suddenly become somewhat impressive. You know, that's I, I would put 12 wins in, I don't know, something like the 75th, percentile now of pit, for for pitchers pitcher seasons so to do that five you know all right five what? years in a row is pretty is pretty unique i mean it's correlated in that if you're a good pitcher you'll tend to do that yep you know and you also have to stay healthy and stuff. Yep. okay well it hasn't been done in 20 years wow okay and let me tell you someone just did it on the right track someone just did it by the way but let me tell you who the four previous ones are and then i'll ask for you to tell me your yeah. guess of who the one that might have done it this year so the last person to do it was andy pettit uh-huh. Before him, Dwight Gooden. Before him, Dennis Eckersley. And before him, Tom Seaver. Wow. Now, we can debate whether... I mean, Pettit and Gooden are probably not going to be in the Hall of Fame. We can debate whether Pettit will be in the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. But Eckersley, clearly, and Seaver are clear Hall of Famers. Andy Pettit, Dwight Gooden, Dennis Eckersley, and Tom Seaver. Not a bad group. Now, no. do you know who the Hall fifth f- person is? Do you know who the person that just did it? Um, oh. I'll give you a hint. Okay. If I were wearing a hat, what team's hat would I be wearing? Oh, my goodness. Oh, okay. Oh, Tanaka. It's Masahiro Tanaka. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, he has been very... I mean, but it... it I, I mean, I understand why you decided to test me on this. He has had kind of a almost an understated, like, That's consistency. That's exactly And right. I mean, it's funny because this entire discussion is about how we shouldn't really understate things like consistency and performance, especially at that baseball, elite level. But in baseball, consistency can be, this is different yeah. than football. 16 games, the backup comes in for two or three games, whatever it is. This is baseball, 162 yeah. games. If you can write in 12-plus wins for Masahiro Tanaka no, I mean, every year for the next... No, I mean, that's incredibly valuable. I mean, I think, I, I don't remember what his contract is like, but that certainly is looking like a very good deal for the Yankees, that contract over the time span. If he's given them 12 wins a year for the last... 12-plus wins a year for the last five seasons, that's well, fantastic. Well, no, I, I, thanks to Matt Dats for putting it up on my screen. Here are his records, 13-5. and five. No complaint there. Yeah. Twelve and seven, yeah. 14, I mean, he's... fourteen and four, thirteen and twelve, and this year he's twelve and five. Yeah. So this is a guy, not you know, this is a guy winning sixty plus percent of his games. So, but let me ask you another question. Let's imagine it's October the third, Wednesday. Eric Bradlow's at Yankee Stadium for the one game playoff. Who's starting for the Yankees? You, no. Let's imagine there's oh, three choices. Yeah. Sabathia, you could argue he's a choice or not. Severino, 
or Tanaka. There's no one else, right? Those are the three. Yeah. It's not going to be Hap, right? They're yeah. Not, they're not start. I don't think they're starting Hap. No, and I mean, I'm going to knock. So I, I think the interesting discussion is Tanaka versus Severino. I All mean, right, so that's realistic. It's not Sabathia. Yeah. Um, and and I mean, I think it is an interesting counterpoint. You, you know, comparison because. You know, it really is the high, I guess a high variance kind of strategy versus that consistency. I think, you know, would you rather have, you know, a very predictable three runs given up? Yeah. Or, you know, a 50% chance of a shutout and a 50% chance of seven runs given up? I mean, because I think, I mean, those numbers aren't probably quite right, but that's that's essentially the way of framing a Severino experience versus a Tanaka experience. Yeah, and so by, by speaking of Severino, um, there's an interesting Red Sox-Yankees game tonight, not just because the Red Sox can clinch, which is fine. Um, it's Severino versus Price. So Severino is 17-8 and eight with a 3-4-6 ERA. Price is 15-6 and six with a 3-4-2 ERA. Severino's whip is 1.14. Price's is 1.1. So these are two, let's call them statistically equivalent pitchers. Mm-hmm. Are you reading anything? I mean, I know there's no momentum in baseball. There's no momentum in baseball. Yeah. Let's be clear about that. But like let's imagine this is a future matchup in game 1 or well after if the Yankees were to make the wild card and win the wild card let's imagine let's imagine this could be the number 2 starters for both yeah. teams potentially or let me ask a question. I, I wouldn't is really, Sale uh, the number one starter for Boston? For sure. Yeah. Okay, so Price is yeah. two. Is Price yeah. two? Yeah, I would think so. Yes. No, uh, definitely, definitely. Um nothing no, to read into this? I, I this particular the outcome of this particular game, no. I mean I mean if one of them I mean, their individual pitching performances contribute some amount of information about how they're pitching right now. But the fact that they happen to be matched up with each other, one of one of them's probably gonna end up being the winning pitcher of this game. That doesn't have any predictive, I think, value to the like a potential matchup of these two particular pitchers in the playoffs again. No. So Shane, as you know, this is a call-in show, so we're excited. Uh, let's go to the phone lines. We'll go to Mike in Alabama. Mike, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with Shane Jensen this morning. Hey, uh, this this Mike. Um, I was going to ask you guys in early seasons like the NFL and college football, how do statisticians work through small sample sizes to really make relevance to the numbers? Well, Mike, first of all, thank you for calling in. That's a fantastic question. Um, Before I turn it over to Shane, because Shane does as much of this work as I do, Mike, I'll tell you just a a brief story, my my own personal story, but it does relate exactly to your question. Um, When I came here to the University of Pennsylvania as an undergraduate, I was 17 years old. I'm walking down Locust Walk, our main street. I see a sign-up, statistics in baseball. I know you asked about the NFL, but we'll get to that in a second. I said, well, I don't know anything about statistics, but I love baseball. So I went to hear a talk, and it was actually one of Shane and my colleagues, Ed George, was talking about something we call shrinkage estimation, which is when you have small sample sizes, but you know something about the population, how much do you take the early small sample size data and shrink it back towards the population. So how much weight do we put on the small end versus what we know about the population? And Mike, the reason I love your question, and and I'll turn it to Shane to talk about the NFL, the thing I love about your question is you've asked pretty much the most fundamental question in statistics. What do you do? If you had an infinite number of games, you really don't need a statistician to tell you the win percentage or the forecast. You've observed these teams a million games. Well, I could probably predict a million in first pretty well. So you've asked the most fundamental question in statistics is how do you adjust for small sample sizes? So let me turn it over to Shane to talk about your question in the NFL. 
Yeah, and I, I, I think sort of taking your specific question, so the real I mean, Eric's already kind of basically introduced the framework we think about, which is that, you know, our kind of forward-looking predictions of a team, say, end-of-season winning percentage should be some kind of combination of how many games they've won and lost so far. Obviously, that does factor in. But also kind of a, a, a an expectation coming into the season, a, a kind of our prior expectation of their winning percentage. And so once we agree that, you know, our end-of-season prediction should be some combination of the two, obviously the science is what is the particular weighting that you put on two games versus your prior expectations. And that kind of weighting is something that you can look historically and sort of say, well, if I go back every single season over the last 20 years and I have I, I kind of give myself the same exercise where I'm trying to predict the end of the season, what is the kind of weight that I put on two games versus prior expectations? And you can kind of actually calculate kind of the optimal weight for, you know, looking at you know, taking previous seasons as kind of your prediction exercise. So, Mike, I also want to, first of all, thank you for your call again. I want to say two other things, Mike, that relates to your question. Um, the first is, and Shane just mentioned this, so a lot of people would say, well, why do I need a model? Like, why don't I just take all the past data I have and say, what fraction of the time does a 2-0 and team end up with five wins, six wins, seven yep. wins, etc.? I've got an empirical frequency. Who needs math? I've just got data. And I think what you and I would say is, well, first of all, you need to control for various factors. All 2 and O's aren't created equal. Yep. And secondly, you actually have a lot less data than you think. And so you always think you can just compute what we call an empirical frequency yeah. and just use that as an estimator. But actually, mathematical models are really needed to coherently bring in all that information. So that was kind of one point I wanted to bring. The second one is, Shane, I'm sure part of Mike's questions is as follows. So let's even go back to my – let's use his example, but let's go back to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Okay? So the Bucs have won two games. That's a fact. They're not going to win less than two games this season. Okay? They've got 14 more games to play. Okay? Those are two facts. If you asked people on their priors – most people would have said the Buccaneers are going to win six, six and a half games for the season. So that's, that's an odds of 0. 0.4, 0. 0.4 yeah. times 16. So let's just take two that they've won plus 0. 0.4 times 14. That gets us to 7.6. Now, part of Mike's question is, well, wait a second. The prior was 0.4, but don't we have to update that number? Like now maybe our belief is the Buccaneers are a 500 team. Well, if they win half their remaining games, that's seven plus the two they already have, that's nine. So how do you think about, you're right, if I keep my prior at point four, the Bucks are at 7.6, which is, as we both agree, not a playoff team. Right. But if all of a sudden you adjust that point four upward to point five, they're at nine wins, and now you're all of a sudden saying, hey, we may be going to a playoff game in Tampa Bay. And this is, uh, I mean, to a certain extent, this is why if you're going to kind of keep your prior expectation where it is, why it kind of kind of becomes consistently downweighted as the season goes on, right? So we have our prior expectation coming into the season, and if it does look like, based on a team's performance in that season, it was misaligned, like we just didn't know Tampa Bay as well as we thought they did, that's kind of taken care of by the fact that the as you accumulate more and more seasonal data, your prior kind of gets naturally downweighted relative to that accumulation of actual data. Well, let me ask you a question. Which NFL teams 
have you kind of adjusted the most in your own mind mm. from the priors you had going into the season? There's no doubt in my mind Tampa Bay has to be one of those teams that you've adjusted upwards. And by the way, neither of us, though, would be surprised at this point if they didn't end up better than 500. Are you? Would you be shocked if I told you right now the Buccaneers don't win nine games? You wouldn't be shocked, right? No, no. And I mean, that certainly was not something I would have bet on prior to the last two games of observation. I mean, I did not see them as, I mean, especially in that division, I did not. I thought they were going to be the one team that was not good in that division. But let's division. also point out, by the way, as last year, and I, I apologize for fans, I keep harping on this on Morton Moneyball. Last year, they were the best division in football, measured by the total number of wins, and it wasn't close. They're the only division currently in football where every team has won at least one game. So there is no team in the NFC South, the Falcons, the Panthers, the Saints, and the Bucks. Each one of them, there's three teams at 1-1, and one, and the Bucks are the one team at 2-0. Yeah. and oh. So every one, matter of fact, do you believe the following is possible? Every team in that division is 8-8 eight and eight or better. Um, it could happen. I just think it's pretty unlikely to happen just because they do beat up on each other a lot. You know, but again, that. all three or four of those teams, by the way, made the playoffs last year and won 11 yep. games. Yep. So it's not that hard to imagine all four of those teams. And I'm pretty sure maybe Matt, I don't know how Matt would easily check on this. Like, you know, Siri, have all teams in a division ever gone eight and eight or better? Yeah. But I don't think that's ever happened, and I think it could happen this I year. I think it could happen. I think that argues against it is, unfortunately, the rest of that conference is also stacked with amazing teams. Well, that's so, true. And they I do mean, have to play each other. Yes, and, and so, I mean, I think I think the, the type of scenario that might, would arise where that could happen is, you know, something more like the AFC where there's a few weak divisions and one particularly strong one. I don't think we have the current that current scenario in the AFC, um, but I just... I just I think there's too many good teams outside of their division that those NFC South teams are going to have to face. I don't think they all finish with a winning record. Though I, I, I agree. Now, based on what I've observed of Tampa Bay, they're the last remaining team where I kind of feel like, you know, overall team quality-wise, they should be an above 500 team. Yeah, and all, they, the, all the other teams in that division, same thing. Yeah, I think you were saying is if they didn't have to, they do play each other. But if you just said, are is Atlanta, Carolina, and New Orleans, are they 500 teams or above, you'd say? Yeah, yeah of course. The problem is they have a schedule, and they yeah. play each other, and then they play other strong NFC teams. But just on paper, yeah. those three teams are 500 yeah. teams. So any other teams that, you know, back to Mike's question, and Mike from Alabama, thanks again for your call. Any other teams you're adjusting upwards or downwards based on performance so far? Well, um, yeah. I mean, I mean, the Steelers are a really intriguing team because they have played about as poorly as one can play in their really first bad. couple games. They've looked really, really terrible. And, of course, there seems to be a lot of, you know, kind of drama coming out of that city as well with that team. Um, so they're ones that I, I mean, I, I'm not going to shrink them too much down from where I had them because I do think Pittsburgh is always always good basically um but certainly i think i am gonna have to pull them down a little bit especially with i, I was about to say with the ravens looking not bad but the ravens are another team where i just have no idea how good they are they're very high variance team it seems but i think i think with the browns looking better with the you know ravens looking improved i think pittsburgh's actually gonna have a tough time of it this year i th I, th I still would expect them to win the division but i think they're gonna have a tougher struggle and I, I, I think a lot of people a priori 
coming into the season were writing New England and Pittsburgh into an a- into that AFC Championship game again, you know, and I think a lot of those people are probably entertaining a lot of other notions now, given what's happened. What about the falling? What about the uh, Seahawks? Anything with the Seahawks? I actually thought the Seahawks would not be as good this year. I mean, I guess that one is one where I think their performance thus far has been about what I expected. I think the Seahawks obviously have lost essentially all of their defense over the years, and now they they haven't done anything essentially to replace their off or to improve their offensive line. So I think they're still going to be they're playing about as well as I thought they would, which is a five hundred team. Hmm. All right. Well, we have another phone call. Let's go back to the phone lines. We have, is it Margie from Mississippi? Margie, uh, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here this morning with Shane Jensen. Hey, Eric. It's good to be back with you guys. My question is in regard to um, when you talk about small data, specifically for an NFL season, then how much do you take into account off-season changes and key personnel and coaching? Specifically for Tampa Bay that you've been speaking about when they changed their offensive coordinator to Todd Munkin. Yeah, so uh, first, Margie, that's a, that's a great question. Um, let me address what I know about it, and then Shane can jump in as well. So, Margie, it's a great question. So this is a question we've been asking our co-host, Cade Massey, who runs the Massey Peabody system for a long time. How? Do, why are your priors so strong, given the amount of personnel and coaching changes? And um, how do you even incorporate that into a statistical model? It's very, very difficult because it's hard to decompose the quality of, let's say, the coach from the quality of the players. And also, I believe that football is also a system game. So you could put a quarterback or a player in a different system. Like part of Pat Mahomes' success this year, while he didn't win the big one, I don't know how anybody could say Andy Reid is not an offensive genius as a coach. Yeah. He's been a remarkable... And this guy actually gets back to Neil Payne's point. Maybe we put too much on winning the big one as opposed to Andy Reid's been to the playoffs like 15 consecutive seasons. Um, and he can coach quarterbacks. We know he can coach yeah. quarterbacks. Um, in terms of Todd Munkin and the change in the offensive coordinator, look, I, one of the stats I said to Shane, and I'd love to hear his thoughts about it, is Ryan Fitzpatrick finally... He's throwing the ball down the field. We've got a quarterback that's not looking for five-yard checkdown passes. Yeah. The guy's averaging 15 yards of completion. So that's the new offensive coordinator's strategy and game plan. Get the ball down the field. So I think it's a huge amount, but bring that into a statistical model is non-trivial. What are your thoughts, Shane, no, to Margie's I mean, I, question? I think it's, it's a fantastic question because, I, I mean, I am fascinated by the role that coaching plays in in and in professional college football as well, where I know a little less, but certainly professional football, there seems to be such still a wide variance in coaching, and as you sort of pointed out, particular systems work really well for particular types of personnel. So it's an incredibly complex thing to try and model in a predictive way. I mean. You know, one reason for the sort of success of the throw down the field that Ryan Fitzpatrick is 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 enjoying right now is maybe in his previous iterations with the Jets or whatever, he didn't have targets like Mike Evans to throw it to. Right. So, I mean, that particular offensive scheme is clearly working for Tampa Bay right now. But in part, maybe that same offensive scheme on another team would be a disaster. Yeah, I think Margie's question also gets to, all anyone asks of their NFL team is to use their personnel as best as possible. So Tampa Bay, I mean, look, I saw Deshaun Jackson. He's not as fast as he used to be. 
He's still probably one of the top ten fastest NFL receivers. He's going to beat yeah. somebody. I mean, you're going to Deshaun Jackson's going to be open at some point during the game, and and it just seem, appears right now every time he's open, Ryan Fitzpatrick gets him the ball. And I mean, this kind of leads into a, a kind of theory I sort of have about coaching. It's a very specific theory because I have a friend of mine who, you know, I, I watched this Jacksonville New England game with him, and he was trying to reassure me. And he's got this deep conspiracy theory where Bill Belichick actually intentionally performs poorly at the start of a season to throw off other teams, you know, later on. And, and I've thought that too. Does that is there any merit to that whatsoever? I, I, I don't think so. I, I don't know how. To, I don't think so. I think what the real story is is. is I think there is something to his late season slash playoff success versus early success season success, but I think it's because. A big part of Bill Belichick's coaching brilliance is he is able to eva- evaluate, you know, a team's weakness and his own team's strengths, and figure out what what in-game strategy to take advantage. You of. You mean the more data Belichick has, the better he is? Exactly that, and and that's why he doesn't do as well in the early part of a season relative to his own norms because he just doesn't have the kind of information. He's still trying to figure out how good of a team he has. And he's and Jacksonville because of personnel turnover and change of schemes and stuff like that. Even though we have data from them previous season, we don't know as much what they're going to rely on this season. And so the second time around, if they see Jacksonville in the playoffs, you kind of hope there's a slight, a somewhat different result based on that gained knowledge. Hmm. Well, this has been the first three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. Thanks to Mike and Margie for calls. We're going to take calls, of course, in our last half hour as well. Uh, this has been three quarters of the show. Please join us again after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports, statistics, and business collide. My three favorite topics. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School. And I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen, professor of statistics. And, of course, if you want to join the conversation, just like Mike from Alabama and Margie from Mississippi did, you can do so very easily. Just call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And you can join the show. Ask us any questions you want. Of course, in the last half hour of, of every show here on Wharton Money, in the football season, we tend to do both over-unders and our NFL matchups. So if you have anything you want to talk about, an over-under you want to throw out to us, uh, you can also tweet us at at WMoneyBall, and our producer Matt Datz will, if you'd like, put up on my screen your over-under that you'd like us to talk about. So, Shane, before we get back to some over-unders and to the NFL matchup, um, I want to tell you something strange that's going on in golf starting next year. And I'd like to get your reaction to it, because one of the things we do talk about here on Wharton Moneyball is, let's call it, tournament design. Okay? And so we've talked about the fact that you and I actually both, let's just start with ones we like. We both like the NFL, which is that the division winner and the top two teams in each division play one less game. It's a massive reward, yeah. and deservedly so, for the team that wins the most games in a division. We like that. I think both you and I like baseball. In other words, the Red Sox are going to win the division, not the Yankees. I have no problem with the Yankees having to play a one-game playoff, and the Red yep. Sox, in some sense, have a double the odds, if you'd like. Of no, I, actually, it. I really like the way they've organized the wild card. I think it, it, it obviously gets more teams involved in the postseason hunt every year, but it also rewards the winning of a division. All right, now let me give you one you are going to hate mercilessly. So this week in golf... We have the uh, 
Tour Championships. The yep. final 30 players that lead in the FedEx points are now playing. And this year they're keeping it, you know, there's a point system. They have accumulated points going in. So I don't even think some of the 30 people, I'm not convinced all 30 can even win the final point tally, even if they win this week. But that part's fine. But let me tell you what they're doing next year. I just read this. So imagine you are number one, which, by the way, Bryson DeChambeau is the guy right now, number one going in. This is next year. He starts at 10 under par. The people in 6 through 10 start at like 8 under par. The people at 11 through 16 start at like four under par. You're looking at me like I'm nuts. I'm telling you that is what they're doing. So let me say it again. If you're in like the 26 to 30 slot next year, you start at even par and the guys up top start at 10 under. So literally the way you describe it is think of the following. I'm a pro, you're a pro, and I'm giving you two shots around. That's the way they're doing. And so there's no points in some sense. If you start at zero, and I start at zero, and you start at minus 10, and I get ahead of you, I win the tour championship. Professor Shane Jensen, I'd like your thoughts on this. Has this ever been done at, at, at in, like, a golf tournament at, at, at this high a level? I, I, no! It's, There's it, no handicaps in golf. No, I, I did not think so. And the handicaps are going in kind of a weird direction, too, right? Well, I mean, not a weird direction. Well, you could make an—this well, is an interesting fact I hadn't thought about. You're saying the best players normally give up strokes. Yes. In this case, the yeah. best players are getting strokes. I mean, but I they're understand doing it what the they're per- doing. You, I mean, you're trying to reward past performance, basically, but you're making like I mean, if you had to, you know, if you wanted to do something, if, if you're like, if your objective function was like, oh, golf is is too unpredictable. It's too exciting the way like four, you know, ten or twelve people can can win any one tournament. I'm gonna come up with a system that as much as possible guarantees the person who we think is going to win does win you'd give them you'd give an extra aid to the top players i think it, the way this is the argument i think oh. they're giving I, it, and both like, yeah. you and i both think this is crazy someone should be able to stare at the leaderboard not have a computer in front of them and know who's going to win the overall championship yeah that's the argument so right. i don't there's no there's no i, I just look if you start why do minus, they have the tournament why don't they just like give a trophy and a check to whoever is number one in the world at the end of the year? They do that. What's actually interesting is the person that wins this tournament this week may be a different person getting the big $10 million check. I see. And so that their point is they want us as humans to watch this final event and say, all right, Shane Jensen is at minus 23, Eric Bradlow's at minus 17. Huh, I wonder who's going to win the over... No, you're at minus 20. Now, you started at minus 10. Who cares? You're at minus 23. I'm at minus 17. You're the winner. Yeah. So they're doing it to raise the fan engagement. Like, Because you know what they always have in these tournaments now is, here's how you're doing in this tournament, and then next what they have it in green. Here's your FedEx standing as of now. And, and, and us, as we're watching this saying, what? What the hell? This way? Just yeah. make it as simple as possible. You get strokes. I don't get strokes. Whoever has the lowest score at the end wins. Yeah. I just thought this was crazy. No, it is. I mean, I I, I guess, uh, you know, in the spirit of experimentation, I'm really intrigued. That's what, th- thank you. What they're going to do, that they're doing this. I just, yeah, it, it seems, it certainly does not seem like a particularly intuitive scheme to me to do it that way. Well, not only that, I think you brought up... Let's hark back on your uh, discussion in the first half hour here on Wharton Moneyball about variance. What are the odds that you think 
someone with a 10-stroke advantage is going to lose that 10-stroke advantage to one of those bottom five players. Is it higher than 1%, 2%? I mean, in golf, 10 strokes? Yeah. I understand it's over I mean, four I mean, rounds, but that's that's massive. Especially to get that 10-stroke advantage, what have you had to do to earn that 10-stroke advantage? Well, you advantage? had to play well You've the had entire to have season. very consistently high performance, and so that says that you're not going to necessarily be this... I mean, in order to lose that 10-stroke lead, you have to be one of these high-variance players that, like, you know, is kind of all over the map in terms of performance. But that wouldn't give you that 5-10-stroke exactly. lead. You wouldn't the be the person lead. at number one in the world with that kind of variance. I just thought that caught my eye in yeah. sports. And the golfers were like, huh? Yeah. What? Yeah. What? But they were like, well, I guess. Try yeah. it out. See what happens. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll try it for a year. You know, why not? I mean, now, they're still playing golf and making lots of money, so they can't complain Yeah, they're not much. complaining. But the one thing I would say is, here's an interesting way to think about it also. What would make this almost reasonable? So suppose we did the following. Imagine, and you made me think about this when you gave your answer. Imagine we took the top player right now and his points total, and that's Bryson DeChambeau, and we took somebody near the bottom at number 26 to 30 and said, what are the chances that they can win the FedEx playoff? Let's set next year's stroke advantage for the leader to equate those two things. So we're making it visually more simple for the fans, but we're not fundamentally changing the odds that someone could come back up from the bottom. Now, that's an interesting statistical problem. How do I set the stroke advantage to basically match odds to essentially equalize it to the past. That to me is actually yeah. a fascinating problem. And one actually I would support. Yeah. If if they could equal like, you know, you get two and a half strokes, I get one point three strokes, and that basically makes it so that we might as well have just used the previous system. Right, right, right. No, yeah. No, I mean I, I think I mean I, I hope that at least this initiative, though it's weird, um does open up at least the the Pandora's box for this kind of experimentation. Yep, and I, I hope so too. So uh, before we get to the NFL matchups, um, let's just do a few over-unders of something I brought to the show about six months ago when it's not football season, but we can always do them now. We, you know, Since we've been on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers train, let's start with the first one. So thanks to our producer, Matt Datz, Ryan Fitzpatrick, eight and a half starts this year, over-under. Huh. Yeah, I would say I'm going to take the under. I think it's more likely that, you know, he has a couple bad games in a row, um, you know, just because of his high variance. He has a couple bad games in a row, you know, once Winston is actually available. And it's only one more game, the Steeler yep, game, and right. then Winston's yeah, available. So I mean, exactly. So he, he has a, all he needs is a couple games in a row, bad games in a row from here on in, and Winston will replace him, I think. So I, I, th- I, think it, I think I'll take the under on that. Okay, definitely. I'm taking the under, but for a different reason. Um, since I've been living with the Bucks for the last 20 years, if you'd like, if you, when Winston comes back, if you think he's fully ready and prepared and you don't play him, you've got a problem going forward, in my view. So I think that, um, look, if Ryan Fitzpatrick plays the way he's been playing, you can't bench him. I just don't think he'll be playing. I'm not even saying a five-interception yeah. game. Ryan Fitzpatrick comes out, and he has a game where he throws for 200 yards. They they He throws one yeah. touchdown, two interceptions. It's a mediocre game. I think you're looking for a reason to bring Winston back in. I think the Bucks will find that reason, especially because this relationship to Marge's yeah, question. You, he's got a relationship with Dirk Cutter, the head coach. 
you, you you've got to be thinking about the long run. You just have to. Yeah, and I mean, I, I you you bring up a, 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 actually the the most interesting scenario that I didn't even think of because I think of Ryan Fitzpatrick as either this four touchdown a game guy or this five interception a game guy. But what if he actually plays a few games in a row of essentially like Tyrod Taylor performance, where it's clearly yeah, not he's fine. It's clearly not. It's it's competent, but clearly not you know good. That's really Actually, the question. As, as can, a can you replace him at that point? As a Buccaneer fan, let me tell you, I would be thrilled with that if they won, obviously. He plays mediocre, but that's when they decide to replace him. Because yeah. I'd rather replace him not like when on a two-game losing streak. Let's go to another over Related to starts, we talked about Tyrod Taylor, Baker Mayfield. Does Tyrod Taylor start more on over-under nine-and-a-half games? Oh, Tyrod Taylor over under nine and a half. Games. So they, do they basically give? Do him- they do they basically based on what we've seen thus far? Do we update the odds of them kind of carrying him forward the whole season? I think they play. I think they stick to. Um, I think they stick to playing Tyrod Taylor this whole season. I think the only uh, one one scenario where they wouldn't would be they haven't won again. You know, like they 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 yeah. get to they get like ten games in and they still don't and have a victory. Oh, nine and one, and then they maybe take a chance cause, just because they don't want to do another winless season. But I think they've got to, Tyrod Taylor gets them a couple wins early on, and they decide to kind of coast to a six and ten type record. Okay, so I'm gonna go the I'm gonna go the under, and let me say why I'm gonna go the under here because um, I think they really want to start Baker Mayfield, and I think. Cleveland doesn't stink. So, you know, the classic risk of, well, I'm going to put Mayfield out there and he's going to get murdered out there. Or yeah. you, I'm surrounding him with an awful team. Actually, Cleveland's not an awful team. And you put him out there, and I think they want to see him out there, possibly in meaningful games. Because, you know, in some sense, for me, by the time Cleveland's, let's call it 1-8-1, and one, or whatever they are, I don't want to... I mean, yeah, it's fine to see Mayfield, but I'd like to see him out there in games 4 or 5, where maybe they're 1-3-1, 2-2-1, and one, two, two and one, whatever they are. I want to see him out there when it matters. Yeah. No, I mean, Just, I mean, you make a very compelling argument. You've almost essentially convinced me that, to, to take the under instead, but I'm gonna, I'll stick with the over just to be a man of my principles. All right, here's another interesting one from our producer, Matt. That. So right now, Pat Mahomes of Kansas City leads the NFL in passing touchdowns with 10. He's looked amazing. He has a two-touchdown edge over Ryan Fitzpatrick, who has eight. Uh, Rivers, Dalton, and Kirk Cousins have six. Brady, Breeze, Flacco, Wilson, and Bortles have five. 2.5 on his ranking of passing touchdowns at the end of the season. So is he in the top oh. two? Is he in the top two, or is he worse than the top two, given that he's already got a two-touchdown lead? And just to give you some data, he has 10 touchdowns right now. If he went on this pace, he'd have 80. I think we've both taken the under on that one. Yeah. The leader last year, shockingly, was Russell Wilson at 34. Yeah. So... Does Pat Mahomes end up in the top two in the number of passing touchdowns this year? Over under? I'm going to take the under because I think he will rank in the top two, I think, by the end of the season. And it's not just based on his, you know, insurmountable two touchdown lead right now. It's based on the fact that, I mean, I think Kansas City is setting itself up as a very potent offense coupled with a relatively incompetent defense. I think they're going to basically have to win a lot of games by a large amount. I think that guy's going to be passing like crazy all season. I agree with that. I, I think this is right on the knife's edge for me. Um, you know, uh, by the way, Wentz, who ended up with 33 last season, by the way, 
Um, wow. So he was second best, even though he missed the last one. Oh, that's impressive. Yeah, see, that's, impressive. that's what I'm starting to think. But yeah. let me say, the three people, if he, if he, in my view, if Mahomes does not end up in the top two, it's because Rivers, Brady, and Breeze are just Rivers, Brady, and Breeze. Yeah. And they will throw for 35, 40 touchdowns. So I'm going to go the over. I do not think he will be in the top two because I'm putting my faith in... Rivers, Brady, and Breeze, who I consider three of the top ten and, and quarterbacks of all time. And I mean, certainly in the time. case of Breeze and Brady, they're in the same scenario I outlined, where a very potent offense coupled with a relatively mediocre defense means that all those guys are going to be passing a lot this And just, year. by the way, to take the under, which is reasonable to do, just uh, pointed out by Matt Datz, I mean, we agree Fitzpatrick is not going to play the whole season, and so actually Mahomes has a four-touchdown lead. Yeah. So. That's not a. It's not a massive amount, but it's that's not a nothing. Lot. That's a game worth of touch. That's a good game worth of touchdowns. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Shane, this is the time in our show. We go to my favorite time, just because the music's going. It gets me all excited about football. It's time for our Moneyball matchups. Moneyball matchups. I could just listen to this music for the next 12 minutes of our show, but you know what? This is a talk show, and so we got to talk. we got to talk about the NFL games. So, Shane, you have a list of games in front of you. Which game has caught your eye? Which is your Wharton Moneyball matchup? I'm going to leave that money uh, that Monday night matchup to you to discuss. Uh, the ones that I actually... There's a couple games that I think are intriguing to me just because they're they involve teams that I feel like I have a large amount of uncertainty about. Still at this point, I mean, we're we're early in the season, so for example, the Dallas Cowboys at the Seattle Seahawks. We just brought up the Seahawks. I kind of I think that they're not that good of a team this year, but you know, obviously they've been very good for many years. So it's a lot of people still put a lot of faith faith essentially in that organization. The Cowboys have looked both the best of times and the worst of times. They looked very impressive against the Giants, but terrible the previous week. So that's, I think, a really intriguing matchup as far as learning more about whether or not these teams actually are going to be good or not. Because both the Cowboys and Seahawks, I think, are on a lot of people's lists as potential wild, at least wild card playoff contenders. Yeah, and I would agree with that. I think it's an intriguing matchup. Because if Seattle loses this game, they're 0-3. Yeah. I mean, and also, they will have lost to a team that essentially be, you know, three games behind the Cowboys, who, you know, because the Cowboys would be 2-1, and one, they'd be 0-3, but they would have lost to the Cowboys. You know, you're starting to dig yourself. I mean, there are only 16 yeah, games. Yeah, and I mean, Seattle, I mean, with the Rams as good as it is, Seattle really is only going for the wild card at this point, I Abs- think. Absolutely. So, let's alternate games here. Actually, I don't, I'm going to leave the Steelers-Buccaneers game for a second. There's a game that caught my eye, but for a very different reason, and you'll see why in a second. It's the Buffalo Bills at Minnesota Vikings. And let me say why. <laughs> right now, I see in front of us the betting line on that is 16.5. Now, yeah. I know the following stat is true. It's something like the following, but I, Matt can maybe look this up. Like 97% of the last 50 NFL games where a team has been favored by more than two touchdowns, they have not covered. Right. So let me ask you a question. Why do you think our statistical models seem to, in some sense, don't do as well in the extreme tails? Because you would agree, that's sort of like a failure of the statistical models that are out there on the betting lines. So I'm looking at that game and saying, you know, look, I ain't betting a fortune on any game. 
Well, betting's illegal, of course, in most states. I'm saying hypothetically, yeah. if I were to wager on that game, I might wager on the Buffalo Bills and take 16 and a half. What, why do you think, though, let's talk about this just more generally. Why do our statistical models kind of not get these really extraordinary games right? I think because there's probably some kind of, I mean, linearity assumption underlying the fact that, like, as teams differ, you know, we kind of think that, like, a spread should increase essentially linearly with, like, the difference uh, in, in team quality. And we do have a matchup here where it's, we know the Vikings are one of the best teams in the NFL, and we know the Bills are one of the worst teams in the NFL. And so, if you just kind of take that usual kind of difference and map it to a spread, you're going to get this gigantic spread. But it doesn't acknowledge that, like, the way NFL games actually are played, that, you know, Minnesota, if they go up by that big of a spread, are just going to take out their starters. Right. There's going to be all these kind of mechanisms, structural mechanisms to how the game is played. They only win 31-17. to All right, well, all right, 31-17 is a pretty comfortable win. And they're not playing to win by 17. No, no, that's right. So I think... You know, I think that's what's kind of shrinks some of these points. Should shrink some of these point spreads back down to reasonable levels is is, is would be building in extra knowledge of kind of the psychology of how in game strategy works. But that that game caught my maybe in the last minute or two we have any other games catch your eye besides? Well, in I your mean, case? as far as uh, 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 the Falcons Saints, I think is always going to the, the the Falcons playing the Saints is always exciting. I mean, that's going to be probably another fifty four forty eight kind of matchup. I would guess. Well, it's also good fantasy a game. Big game in the NFC South. Yep. Again, you know, eventually you start... I don't say you I mean, all the g- games in the NFC South are, are big. big because now we're kind of viewing every single one of those teams as playoff contenders, right? Yeah, not only that, but you know, at some point you have to add this up. If the Saints were to lose this game, they would be 0-2 in the division. And at some... They lost to the Buccaneers in Week 1 at home. Yeah. So at some point, these division losses, which could matter for tiebreakers, these division losses start to add up. Yep. And so that, I agree with you, that's, an, that's a crucial, crucial game. Um, let me talk about, just quickly, two other games that caught my eye. I think the Packers at Redskins is a fascinating game. You know, the, the Redskins um, disappointed me in this last game. Mm-hmm. I didn't bet on it, but I, I thought they were going to beat the Colts. Yep. Um, they laid an egg, especially. But, of course, who did they beat in Week 1? They beat the Cardinals. So, I mean, maybe we don't learn that much. Maybe the Redskins aren't particularly good. But that game has certainly caught my eye. And the Packers got kind of a disappointing tie, if you would like. Yeah, um, in, in I mean, I, I mean, I think it's it's a game that's going to intrigue um, it, it, at the minimum, just because it's a further updating on what we have out of Aaron Rodgers this year, right? I mean, if we ha- if we have hobbled Aaron Rodgers, correct, we have to really kind of update. I mean, certainly the Packers' fortunes are entirely dependent on that guy, and so we really, you know, the Packers kind of update as far as like whether they are p- real legitimate contenders or not is entirely on whether that guy can kind of work through this injury. And maybe the last game I'll talk about, which I'll just say 30 seconds at the end about Tampa Bay and Pittsburgh, the guy that I, he can not he can be beaten, he was beaten once, San Francisco 49ers at Kansas City Chiefs. I'm actually quite surprised that game, I understand a five-game spread isn't a huge amount, but I'm surprised Kansas City's not favored by more. Right. That means only a two-point difference on a neutral field. Kansas City has looked great. 
Yes. Can't, I mean, I'm surprised that the Chiefs are yeah. only favored by five points yeah, in that and, game. But, I mean, San Francisco has not looked terrible no, no, themselves. So I think that's probably what's driving it. I mean, I agree. If you to- if you gave me a neutral field and you gave me San Francisco against Kansas City, you take based Kansas on what City I know right two. now, I would take Kansas City minus two. That's well, right. maybe just in the last 30 seconds I have here, obviously I have to say a few words because everyone's saying, when's Eric going to talk about the Pittsburgh at Tampa Bay game, which I will fortunately be at. So um, I like Tampa Bay in the game. I think it's going to be a very high-scoring game. Um, I see no reason why, given... Oh, look, this way. If the Steelers play anywhere near the way they've played, I like Tampa Bay in the game. I think it'll be a highly competitive and highly exciting game because, look, the Steelers can score. Big Ben had a great game. Yeah. They didn't lose because of their offense. Yeah. And, you know, this may be it's another... C- it certainly is one going in where if you had to predict 400 yards for both quarterbacks... It wouldn't be impossible. It would, be, it would definitely be that game. Well, this has been another two hours here on Morton Moneyball. I'd like to thank our producer, Matt Datz. Thank our associate producer and sound engineer, Danielle Bruno. I'd like to thank our guest, Neil Payne. You can follow him at, at Neil underscore Payne. This is Eric Bradlow. And I've been here with my co-host and friend Shane Jensen. Some combination of the two of us, Cade Massey and Adi Weiner, will be here every week on Wharton Moneyball. Between now and then, enjoy your sports, enjoy your statistics. We'll see you next week on Wharton Moneyball. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.